Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. Our podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. This podcast is continuing to gain recognition as a resource for business and entrepreneurs. From Inc.com to MSNBC's Your Business, uh, Fit Small Business, Proven, and most recently, uh, People First. Accelerate Your Business Growth is enjoying inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to for small business owners, entrepreneurs, and salespeople. This is uh, due in great part to the wonderful guests that I have had the opportunity to speak with over the years. These are folks who give of their time and their expertise to come on this podcast and have a conversation with me so that all of you listeners can do better things in your business. Today is no different. My guest today is David C. Baker. David is an author, speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books advised over 900 firms, and keynoted conferences in more than 30 countries. His work has been discussed in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fast Company, Forbes, USA Today, Business Week, and Inc. Magazine. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and his most recent book is available at expertise.is. Thanks so much for joining me today, David. I am very glad to be here. It's um, I've heard about your podcast and listened, and it's very exciting to be here. I just love this opportunity to have sort of a private conversation while all kinds of other people listen, right? Yeah, exactly. It's going to be great. That's exactly right. Explain to me how you ended up living with the tribe of Mayan Indians, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds a little unreal to me, too, when I think back to my earlier life, it almost like I almost have to go back there to to feel like it was actually real. So my parents were medical missionaries. So they did, my dad did dental work and mom did um, nursing work. We also did some literacy work. And so we, they lived in Michigan. And when I was four, we went to live in Costa Rica for a year to learn Spanish. That's where I learned Spanish. They just dropped me into a kindergarten basically. And then when I was five, uh, we went there till I was 18. So we lived in this, this uh, very, very primitive village. It was a Mayan tribe, no, no roads to speak of, no electricity, no plumbing, 
no stores. And so it was almost from another life. And I didn't really know that there was another world out there until I remember listening to Armed Forces Radio and hearing uh, the Nixon trials. That was the first time I knew there was a U.S. essentially. And I go back there and visit a lot. Yeah, my first impression of the U.S., right? Great thing to remember. <laughs> Not very good. Yeah, but uh, so that that's that's where I lived and grew up. I came to the U.S. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I didn't really come to the U.S. and live till I was 18. And wow. so it was very interesting life. It's I, I'm so grateful for it. It taught me so much about self-reliance, about different cultures, about how the U.S. isn't necessarily the center of the world. Uh, and and uh, yeah, there's a lot we could talk about there, I suppose. But there, there's just so much about, so much to learn from other cultures and the way other people do things, and and that keeps creeping into my work and my perspectives as well. Oh, I'll bet. It's such an interesting perspective that I I, I have to believe is really got to be incredibly valuable for you because you get you have had the opportunity to experience for a length of time, different um, economies, different communities and environments, and see how people interact differently and decision make differently. Exactly. Yes. And, and a different take on entrepreneurialism as well. It, like even the word, we throw around the word marketplace, right? But growing up, a marketplace was a real marketplace. You know, it was in the center yeah. of town and the marketplace was on a different day of the week because that allowed people selling, selling their wares to travel from one city to the next and hit all of those marketplaces that were open weekly. In fact, one of the villages we traveled to regularly wasn't on a seven-day week cycle. They were on a five-day week cycle, so we had to really figure out exactly what day we were getting there. But there was a real marketplace, right? And and some yeah. all of these terms that we take for granted, were, they were using them. And, and actually, when I go back to visit, I'm, I'll be back there in two weeks. When I go back to visit, not much has changed. Now there's this, this cell tower in the middle of the village, and everybody's running around with a cell phone because they skipped the entire wired phone generation. But and there's electricity now, and there's some plumbing. But otherwise, it's pretty unchanged. I, I love it actually. It's a, it's such a great experience. Gosh, I'll bet. So let's talk about how let, let's talk about expertise, and let's talk about how it's viewed differently in different sorts of cultures. Sure. Like in the U.S., when we, we use the word expert really in, in two different ways, I think. Um, one is an expert who's also an entrepreneur. So they're bringing some skill to the table. It could be a product or a service, and they're doing it in some entrepreneurial fashion. So they're taking some financial risk. And then we have expertise that's not associated with an entrepreneurial risk, and that's somebody who maybe is a craftsman who works for somebody else. Or it could be somebody who works on the client side who has a good salary and they're an actuary or something like that. This, the, the book that I wrote, uh, and this is the first book that I've written of the five that I felt really, really passionate about. It's, it's written to those folks who are selling their thinking. They're, they're essentially monetizing their ability to match patterns. They see patterns as they, they look at the world through a pattern matching mask, so to speak. And then they apply what they learn through that pattern matching and they, they make money from it. So I'm talking to entrepreneurs who are also risk takers as they sell their expertise. Okay. So 
I'm one of those people, I think. So, so why do these folks, these experts, have so much trouble positioning their services? Yeah, such a great question because in some cases, these experts that, that you're talking about are actually in the business of positioning other people, right? Right, and, right. And, yeah, and so th- it's particularly acute to think that these are the folks that can't do it for themselves. I, I mean, if you're not in the business of positioning other people, well, it kind of makes sense that maybe you can't do it for yourself. You need to hire somebody. But if you're in the business of positioning other people, why can't you do it for yourself? I think the primary reason for that is because we're all inside our own jar and we can't read the label on the outside of our jars. We, we're not that objective. It's why like an advisor can go into a firm and say things that everybody already knows, but they're saying it with a different level of objectivity and maybe a larger context. And so it means more to that situation. So that's the first reason we, we can't really read our own labels. We can't see what our unique strengths are. We can't, we're too hard on ourselves as entrepreneurs as well. And so we're always thinking about what can't happen or what hasn't happened rather than what could happen. That's one reason. I think you know another reason is because we do know what the right decisions could be in order to be more successful as entrepreneurs, but we lack the courage to make those choices. We're, we're just not sure. We could be paralyzed because of too many choices. More likely, it's because we're so in love with the idea of opportunity that the notion of making a choice which might involve saying no to some opportunities is so painful for us. It's almost physically painful. Like the, the notion of leaving opportunity in the table in developed cultures is so painful to entrepreneurs that they just don't want to do it. They want to scoop up every opportunity they can and turn it into something. And as a result, they look back five, 10 years later, and they look back over their lives and they realize that they've played around at a lot of things, but they didn't dive deep into something, right? They didn't do a podcast that came out regularly that found a significant sponsor, like I'm talking about you, and you know they they were they were lured or, or, or lured away into all these other things that they might right. be able to turn into opportunity. I, that is, is so true. And so, and one of the things that I see the, these folks doing is they, they will start on something. I think they get to that place where they're sort of afraid to go ahead and pull the trigger. And so then they want to remake it. They, they want to like say it's a webinar series or something, and then it's never quite good enough. It's never right. really ready to put out there. Tear it down, rebuild it. We can always yeah. make it better. Right. Instead of just saying, listen, my, 80%, what I think is 80% good is what other people would consider 100% good. Why don't I just, right. just, just um, you know, sit here and make a lot of good money and quit starting over again? Like there's just something about entrepreneurs who have to fiddle with everything. And I mean, I'm talking as an entrepreneur, right? You obviously are as well. So I, I'm being self-critical here, but there is something about like at some point just settle down and make a lot of money and realize that it doesn't like, I forget exactly how, what that phrase is. Like the enemy is the, or the perfect is the enemy of the good or something like that. Right. That we just need to just, just knuckle down and do something and do it, do it good enough. I, and also let some dreams die as well. I, I know that's sort of counterculture, but we, 
as you get older, as you get in your late 30s, 40s, 50s, you've got to start looking at all of these goals you had for your life and say, uh, you know what? That's not going to happen. I'm going to double down on this, and I'm going to be really good at this. Our world has changed. Everything around us has changed, and that's because of Google, really. Google has made it so obvious that there are too many areas of knowledge for any one person to be an expert in all of these things. The world will not allow us to be generalists anymore, except for a very few people, and I'm not one of them. I'm going to have to be really good, really deep at something, and then I can explore all these other areas in my personal life, my life outside of work, but in terms of what I'm getting paid for, I better know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think that is really a huge point because that, that's the other thing I find folks doing is they want to be all things to all people. And I think it's because they're afraid that if they, it's that opportunity thing, they're afraid if they don't offer everything under the sun, they're going to miss out on that one thing instead of just really focusing on something where there's a need and building a business and a world around that thing. Right, right. And not being afraid of competition as well. Like I'm doing an event later this week and I'm inviting six of my primary competitors to come for free and I'm going to use them to help work the tables and provide advice to other people. I'm going to promote their work. It's like there's so much work out there for us. We don't, part of what drives us to, to just grab all this opportunity and scoop it towards us on the top of the table is because we don't want somebody else to thrive. And that's yeah. a really backwards notion, right? There's, the world is big enough for a lot of people besides me. No question. And what I usually say to people is there's business out there you don't want. So, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But it, so but it might be a good fit for somebody do. else. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Just because it isn't a fit for me doesn't mean it's not great business for somebody else who might have a different exactly. structure, might have a different personality that's more of a patient coaching style than mine might be and so on. Yep. 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 I completely agree with that. Okay. So when we talk about positioning, so you talk about horizontal and vertical, and I'm wondering if you can explain what the difference is between those two when it comes to positioning. Sure. So vertical positioning would be if you apply your expertise to an industry category. So like maybe healthcare or tech or financial services or something like that. And it could be very, very narrow, like semiconductors, or it might be very broad, like business to business. So that would be vertical positioning. Horizontal positioning would be applying your expertise across those vertical industry categories, defined more by either the service offering itself, like maybe investor relations or public relations or employee management, something like that. Or it could be by a demographic, like I, I help you connect with the Hispanic audience or something like that. So those are the two primary ways that you would think um, about before you make a decision around positioning your firm. And most um, th this varies a little bit based on the age of the person making the decision. Most younger experts are drawn to a horizontal positioning because it involves so much more variety. They get to touch so many different kinds wow. of companies. And so they start there. But what stops them from being successful there, in other words, this is the big knot they have to untie to make it work, is their ability to actually um, reach and 
connect with their prospective customers. It's very difficult to find those customers when they're organized horizontally because most of the world operates around what I call vertical water fountains. So if you think about other providers or you think about the conferences that are out there or the blogs that are out there, most of those are organized vertically. And so that makes it very easy to find your, your contacts. So people start usually with horizontal because it's more interesting, there's more variety they're more immune to an economic downturn. There's fewer conflicts of interest and so on. Sometimes that works. Sometimes, most of the time, it doesn't. And they have to default to a vertical positioning. The reason they default to that is because it's easier to find their clients. But it comes with some other advantages as well. So, for instance, when you're work, you have a client in a particular vertical and that's your focus, when your client contact moves on to another job, historically, on average, they're going to go to another company in the same vertical of the job they just left, and they'll take you with them. That works out great. Uh, yeah. Another another advantage is, is just like the, the, the vertical water fountains that I've already talked about. It's also compensated a little bit more highly. So, so I that's sort of a nuts and bolts question. Like if you are willing to focus your expertise, then then you're faced with a question, okay, how do I focus it? And that's the first thing you do is is understand horizontal horizontal versus vertical. Then you would you'd make a, a choice there and you may not stick with it, but you'd start there and you'd look at the work that you've done. Like what makes sense? What could you turn into an established declared sort of expertise? Because nobody's going to make it up, right? The expertise is going to emerge from something that you've already done successfully for several clients. And yeah. And from there, you know, there are a lot of tough choices ahead because the painful part for them is not choosing those two or three things where they've been successful. It's essentially saying no to all those other things they really enjoy doing that aren't in the new circle that they're drawing around their new business. So to speak. Okay. So thank you so much for that. So would you then suggest that they, um, focus somewhere and, and then in their personal life pursue things that are of interest to them? Like, is, is there a sort of right. a, a line? Yes, I, I would suggest that exactly. In fact, I would recommend that they not pursue things in their personal life that have much to do with their work life. I really believe still in that in keeping those two worlds apart as much as possible. And one of the motivations for maintaining that work-life work balance is that you, you have these things that you focus on on the outside, and they're so interesting to you that you, you get a little pissed off when your work life starts to intrude on that. So your work life is what, if it's done well, then there's a boundary around it. And you can do what you need to do to be effective within a certain amount of time, and it also provides the money that you will use to fund some of your personal interests outside of work. Mine are uh, motorcycles, flying planes, helicopters, doing fine woodworking, photography. I'm very interested in some of those other things. They have nothing to do with what I do for a living. They have nothing to do with what I do for a living, but it's it um, it it affords me the money and the time to pursue those sorts of things. It also provides really good context for like, I don't want to be some expert that's so out of touch with the world that it, 
like my advice doesn't make sense to anybody else but myself, right? So I want to read very widely as well. I want to read many publications every day so that I can stay in touch with the larger world and have an intelligent conversation with lots of people. Excellent. That's so great. Thank you for that. So <clears throat> I had asked you a question before about um, how expertise is viewed differently. My next question is sort of related to that. It's about people choosing where they want to be an expert. Now, when I'm asking you that question, I'm asking it in a couple of different ways for me. I'm asking, is there a, a need to be geographically um, decisive? And um, another where for me is um, like where in their um, sphere of interest, I guess I'll say. So like for me, I mean, I, I um, advise small business owners and a lot of that is about sales. So would I want to really, really focus on just the sales part or as long as it's in the world of small business and not like doing career coaching or something? Yes, I think you would. So if I, let's say I knew you really well personally and I came across somebody that I thought could use your services, it would be, there would be no confusion at all about how I would introduce you to this person. I would say, uh, Diane knows a lot about small businesses, but especially sales in a small business context. And, and then I could stop right there and maybe I would expand a little bit, but all of a sudden somebody has a very specific category to help you, um, to help to hire you or not, right? We, we want, the, the world is so full of opportunity that we want a very specific statement. And I think it should be like less than 15 words long that will enable a prospect to come to your website and read that statement and self-select themselves either in the running or out of the running before they ever contact you. Because if they contact you, you are, before they've made an initial assessment of whether you're a fit, you are in love with opportunity. So you're going to be, you're going to be tempted to compromise, right? You, yeah. you want to eliminate those temptations. So let them self-select themselves in or out of the running. So you hire this, you hire this advisor. If you're, if you're responsible for sales, if you're in a small business setting, if you have been in business at least this number of years, if you are the decision maker, if you're willing to invest at least this much money and this much time. And then if none of those things are true, or if one of those things are true, then they will never contact you. Perfect. Then you don't ever have the chance to compromise. In terms of geography, you know, there are some services or products that must be offered locally by definition. If it's a really heavy product or if it requires some body or like a utility has to be delivered locally or healthcare in most cases. But otherwise, like from an expertise standpoint, it's better to think of it as like somebody should be willing to travel some of the time, whether it's the expert traveling to the client or whether it's a client traveling to the expert. 
in our world, like we no longer are protected geographically like we used to be, again, because of Google. So in the past, we could only travel a certain amount of time, so we had to find a local expert. Now that's not the case. And there is a lot of value in being viewed as an expert who is in demand outside of your local marketplace. There are exceptions to that, obviously, but in general, you want that to be a, a test that you can check off. Like, is somebody going to travel? What are the expert or the client? Okay. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. That, that helps me out tremendously, which means I'm hoping it helps the listeners as well. So when it comes to applying their work, are there mistakes that you see experts making? For sure. One of those relates a little bit to what we were just talking about, and that's accessibility. So in developed cultures, Experts are, by definition, not as accessible as we, as customer service-oriented people, think we should be. So if you are really accessible, and here's an example of this as an expert. So you say on your website, for a free consultation, click this link and somebody will be with you, will be with you shortly, or, or complete this form and we'll get together for coffee. Well, experts don't do that. That sounds too much like somebody who's desperate for work or just loves talking to people. Plus, if you've got, if there's travel involved, how in the world are you going to get together for coffee, right? It just, it, that's not what experts do. You don't pick the brain of experts for free. Um, or like constantly jumping or being the one who initiates the call versus asking the client or the prospect to initiate the call at a certain time at 4.15 instead of 4. So there are lots of little things you can do to shift the initiative burden back to the prospect or the client because that's what experts do, right? Experts don't make cold calls. You don't have anybody doing that who's a real expert. Now, in undeveloped cultures or developing cultures, that equation is flipped in that experts are the most accessible people. They're the ones who sit in that marketplace that we were joking about at the beginning of this podcast and who anybody can come up and approach. But that has flipped. Now, when experts have to mix with the unwashed masses, so to speak, I'm laughing as I say that, we, we, we either put them in different cars or we put them in uniform. You think about pilots in an airport. We want to be able to quickly identify, like imagine how you'd feel if, if the pilot came out of the plane before you took off or even up in the air and the pilot was in jeans and a, and a t-shirt. Like it would send a jarring message to you, right? We want to see our experts differently. So because that's true, we just need to play into that and, and play the game of how our, our clients want to see us as experts. I love that. That, that is so great. Uh, because, and I think you're right. I think it, it, it's interesting how all of this connects to each other. Like an, an expert who is thinking about that opportunity, you know, that every opportunity is a good one and really does have that sense of, um, you know, I, I need to take all business is going to position themselves in a way that it does not show them as an expert, shows them as a business owner, right? but doesn't show them as, as someone who really is an expert in their field. So yes. really being able to establish yourself that way, I can see this means certain behaviors have to be. Right. And, and I think we have to distinguish between 
like we've always thought of like being in the product business or the service business as if there were only those two choices, right? And I, I want people to think that there really are three choices. There's a product business, the service business, and the expertise business. So my dry cleaner is in the service business. And if they don't treat me well, then I'll just go to, there's three on the corner outside where I live in Nashville. It's like, you know, it's not that emotionally difficult for me just to change dry cleaners, right? But an expert, isn't in the service business. They're in the expertise business. And too many, too many experts are actually cloaking their lame positioning by just over-servicing clients, hoping that that will sort of magnetize these bad clients to them. And it, it's not a good plan. The, the best experts do enough customer service to not be distracting, but people don't hire them because of their customer service skills. They hire them because of their expertise skills. That's great. That is great. I love that. Okay, I have to take a quick sponsor break, and then I have more questions for you. Uh, Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. If you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall and The Business of Expertise by our very own David Baker. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Explore the books that are of interest to you and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're talking with David C. Baker about leveraging your expertise to your business. To, I think I just had that wrong, but leveraging your expertise so you can be successful in business. We'll say it that way. So let's talk about um, – we talked some about what's changed with – expertise in the past couple of decades do you think i mean i look at it and i think boy i mean google is probably the thing that's had the biggest impact uh, or maybe the internet on expertise and the way people do business with each other would you agree with that yes i think so because isn't there sort of an expectation that if i have a question no matter how narrow it is, I can go to Google and find the answer within seconds and the answer will be free. That's undermined the entire world of expertise, right? So, and then the other, like, I, I really like the fact that you threw in the internet as well. And when I think about the impact of the internet on expertise, I think that the probably the biggest element that's changed there for us as experts is content marketing because there are, you know, it used to be pretty unique. You would put, in fact, I started doing this in 1997, actually. I started to build an email list and then every week these folks would get some email insight from me. And I figured if they, if I gave them great insight, they would, they would trust me enough with their email address. That was content marketing. And then it expanded so that we were trying to build organic traffic. So I would go ahead and publish this stuff, not just in an email, but on my website and I would leave it ungated so that 
Google search engine would recognize it, they could index it, and then they would send people to my website if that, if that searcher had a question that they thought I could answer. So the whole advent of the internet and content marketing really changed all of this. But nowadays, everybody's doing content marketing, right? There's content mills. And, and I don't, I, like to stand out in that world, you can't just generate good content. You have to generate brilliant content and you have to have a point of view. You have to be willing at the end of somebody reading your stuff for them to say, wow, I really agree with that. That's fantastic. Or wow, that's really lame. I don't want to follow this guy at all. Like that, you have to be willing to have a point of view that's, that basically divides the audience like the Red Sea. And some of them are going to be more drawn to you. Some of them are going to be drawn or not drawn to you at all or, or repelled from you. And so all of this has changed. Who knows what the next, I have a feeling what the next um, phase of this will be, but none of us really know. So yes, it's changed and we have to keep up with the times here, right? And I, that's partly why I write books, honestly, even if no one bought them, thankfully people do buy them, but even if nobody bought them, I would write them just to figure out what it is I believe about something. Because unless I keep developing a point of view on something, then I'm just not going to have much to offer people. People want a point of view. They want a point of view almost more importantly than they want it to be guaranteed to be correct. They, they want somebody who has a perspective on something. I find that fascinating. That, that is, wow. I never would have thought about it that way, but you say it and I realize that is exactly it. it it's like, you know, is, is this the hill you're willing to die on? Are you going to stand on this and say, this is my right. belief system, right? And I'm okay with sharing it because I really believe I'm, I'm even more okay about, it's not just that I'm okay, it's that I'm passionate about sharing it because I really think it's a difference maker. Right. Yeah. And in your field as a sales expert, you, yeah. you may like, you may be drawn more to a particular theory of change or model of change about how the sales process unfolds. And you may have very clear perspectives about what should and wouldn't, shouldn't be done. There's still room for movement within your perspectives, but you have a clear point of view. And like, if you, if you go speak at the next Ted, they're going to say, Welcome to Diane, who has developed, and then you fill in this blank, and everything they put in that blank is going to be have a very clear point of view that other people aren't going to share. And whether they agree with you or not, it doesn't matter. You cannot be an expert without having a clearly articulated point of view. Oh, I love that. Uh, that that is incredibly valuable. Wow. Okay. So. You mentioned a minute ago that you have, um, you know, guesses about how you think things are going to change or unfold or, you know, develop, I guess is a better word. Do you want to share what you think is going to be valuable in the future? <clears throat> sure. I, you know, but then if I, I could look very stupid here down the road, hopefully people will forget. <laughs> we're, we're memorializing it right now. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they won't come back and I'll be running for office someday and they'll, they'll pull this out and play it on CNN or something. <laughs> I think the next phase is going to be a new level of personal trust in experts. So, and this is partly fueled by the fact that there's so much mistrust now. But I find myself as a consumer of expertise and somebody who likes to think about expertise and so on, somebody who likes to be an expert, 
I find that there are certain authors, certain speakers where I trust their approach to problem solving, even if they're applying that approach to multiple different areas. So like if, if X person writes a book or develops a new perspective on something, I'm going to buy it. I may not agree with it, but I'll listen to it very carefully. I'll give that person a hearing. And so personal endorsement, um, not, I don't mean like um, famous actor endorsement. I just mean experts who have a good reputation. They're going to have to protect what they endorse very, very carefully and maybe only endorse two or three things every five years, but that will mean so much more because like I'm thinking of a Dan Pink, for instance. Yeah. Um, who who endorsed this book, Business of Expertise. That's not why I'm thinking of him because I've been a fan of Dan's for years since I first invited him to come and keynote a conference I was doing. And then I've, I've interviewed him and I've read everything he's written. He just came out with another book about timing. Uh, like I'm, uh, unless something major happens, I'm going to buy anything Dan Pink writes, right? Another one might be Anne Lamott, like uh, who writes on so many different subjects, like on writing, on grief, all kind, you know, there's about 10 of those people, right? I think that may be the next phase where individual integrity is curated so much more carefully than it is now. And hopefully we'll be listening to those people and not the, the jokes on social media who, who just have not had anything but a shallow thought their entire lives. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm just hoping that that's the next movement. I don't know. That's just an inkling I have. I don't have any idea if it's going to be going to tr- happen or not. Well, I, I, <clears throat> I, I tend to agree with you. And I think it probably because I'm hoping that that is the case. It, it's always an interesting thing when you see people uh, faking it and convincing people that they've got the the latest cure to whatever business issue people have. And people sink all sorts of money into it just to find out that there really isn't anything there, but somehow they're made to feel like it's because they didn't work the program. Right, exactly. Right, right? Yeah. that it's their fault. Right. And, and drives me out of my mind because yeah. I just think, wow, that – because there are good people out there. There are good people who really do know what they're doing and – have the client's best interest in mind and in that sort of thing. And so I, I get, I'm with you. I mean, I'm really hoping that I think integrity needs a comeback, you know, in a lot of ways, um, especially in business. I think I, it's so interesting because I look at the, this whole content marketing and the internet as contributing to both sides of that it like contributes right. to the downfall and contributes to the uprising right yeah it could the good with the bad right it, but now yeah. this the signal to noise ratio is so out of whack there's so much yeah. more noise than there is signal i you just go explore twitter for a while for instance that's an example or just just yeah. look at just and, and even google is getting a lot of this wrong like you can type a lot of queries into this the the search box and they're going to point you to something that's right. like, whoa, wait a second. That's just nonsense. Now, most of the time they're sending you to Wikipedia, which I think is a reliable place to send people. But in other cases, it's just pretty lame. Like, and, and Google's business model is to make money. It's not to help mankind right. it's to make money. Right. And so right. there's, there's always a little bit of suspicion in my mind about where all that's going. 
Right. That's right. You have to remember that. That that's exactly right. Like now I wonder about Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, in the future, you're going to want to spend less time on Facebook, and that's a good thing. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. Something else is going on here. And, you know, there's been a lot of things going on, but I think people are spending less time on it anyway. I, I My personal right. feeling yeah. it's it sort of run its course. But Yeah, the horses have left that barn, and it's sort of yeah. a little disingenuous <laughs> to say that now you're going to want to spend less time on Facebook. Yeah. Right. Right. He's like yeah. trying to hard, you know, leverage something that, that has already been happening and say that he's doing it intentionally. But yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe it's a pendulum, pendulum swift uh, shift or maybe it's um, growing up. Right. That everything goes through these stages of, of growth from infancy to childhood to teenage years to adulthood. And so maybe all of this is finding its way because I think it's happened pretty quickly. And Right. Um, yeah. It's hard to keep up with. Yep. I get a little nervous when an, an almost an entire population gets excited about something. That, that's that, like that's when the red light starts flashing for me. It's like, whoa, back this up just a minute. Is this yeah. have we really figured out the implications of all of this? And I, I'm partly that that gets me in trouble as well, because I can be a contrarian when I shouldn't be. Um, and, and that's unhealthy. But I do, I do feel like most of the huge improvements that have come to mankind have come from people that most everybody else said had lost their mind at the moment. And at the moment of discovery, almost everybody thought they were nuts. And so I'm, re I'm always listening for those small, still voices where somebody with a bigger perspective sees reality in a slightly different way. And while the majority could very well be wrong, the majority could very well be right as well. And so, there, you know, there aren't any automatic answers there. Right, right. And that sort of is the um, exciting part of it too, right? What will be next? What, what can happen? Which actually leads me to a question um, that I thought of before and then forgot, which is when we talk about expertise and, and integrity and, and the, this personal expertise sort of thing. Do you think that video plays a role in that? I think it does. I think that consumers, uh, both professional and, and non-professional consumers, appreciate video a lot more willing than I have provided it to them. And one of the reasons, even though I think it's just subconscious, is that I think they believe that they have a, an easier job of detecting authenticity or rooting <laughs> out inauthenticity by seeing something yeah. on video. Yeah. I have a better voice than I have a face, so I <laughs> tend to do more audio than video. But um, yeah, I do think that's helpful. And video is more expensive to produce well. I'm, I'm a gener generally, yeah. I'm a believer in high production value. So doing video that way is, is pretty expensive. But I do think there's a great place for video. And I, I've been slower to embrace that than I should have, really. Yeah, I, so I mean, I, I embrace it, I think, partly because of something that you had said earlier that when we were talking about how um, you don't want all the business and sometimes it's a better fit for someone else to be working with that client. And I think it can really be easier for people to identify someone who they feel a resonance with if they can see them, if they can see that 
their their body language and how they communicate. I mean, I mean, I think communicating like we're doing right now is helpful as well. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that visual, being able to look them in the eye, sort of thing, is um, can can really make a difference. You get a feel for who they are. I agree. <clears throat> I don't do a lot of video with clients, not because I don't like video, but because it forces me to sit still. And I'm, <laughs> I like wearing, a, I'm very engaged in the conversation. I'm not thinking about anything else, but it's easier for me to be engaged when I'm pacing. So like sitting in one place with the video camera trained on me or like my, you know, my yeah. laptop screen or whatever screen is difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. I get that completely. That's interesting. So if you had um, one piece of advice, which I know is hard to do, but I'm going to ask you anyway, that you could give to the listeners for how they can start or continue to build their expertise and position themselves as experts, what do you think that would be? Mm, okay. That's not too hard. I would say make a courageous choice which means saying no to lots of other things. Make a courageous choice about where you're going to really finalize your expertise and then list 20 topics where you need a more clearly articulated point of view and then get smart in those. So that that's maybe part A, B, and C. Maybe I cheated there, but that's really... <laughs> That's really the answer is make a courageous choice and then get smarter. Once you quit messing around and trying to dig a lot of small holes, once you're willing to, to focus and make a commitment to digging one deep hole, you will, you'll be shocked at how quickly you learn because all of your energy can be used efficiently there. And the, what comes with knowing, like just, I call it getting to know as in K-N-O-W, getting to know. Like for and everybody defines it differently. For me, it's like standing in front of an audience of fifty or four thousand people, doesn't matter, opening it up to Q and A at the end and eagerly awaiting any question anybody can ask because I'm pretty sure I can help that person. I'm not afraid of a single question somebody might ask me. That's the power of no, that once you've tasted competence, you never want to go back to being incompetent because it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Thank you. That is really great. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast with me and sharing this information. It is so incredibly valuable and so needed to be said and needs to be said repeatedly, but um, absolutely just really incredibly valuable information my listeners. So I, I just appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Well, thank you. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great. Even if nobody else was listening, it's been fun. <laughs> and I know they are. Though. <laughs> right, exactly. They're listening. I was going to say They're, they are absolutely listening. So please do me a favor and share with my listeners how they can get a hold of you, how they can get your books, you know, everything you've got going on. Sure. So my consulting practice is at Recourses, which is R-E-C-O-U-R-S-E-S dot com. But probably the best place to go and the one that's easier to remember is Expertise dot is, Expertise dot I-S. And that's, uh, it gives you a sample of the book. It, it, there's some interesting stuff about the process of writing it, what it costs and time and money. Some people are interested in that. And also links if you want to get a copy. It's, um, it's, it's a small site, easy to easy to assimilate. And um, that's where I would send people is expertise.is. Fabulous. Thank you. 
And I would like to thank uh, you listeners, uh, you folks are who we're doing this thing for, as well as our sponsor. Please remember to visit uh, audibletrial.com slash business growth to sign up for a free trial and get a free audiobook when you do. Continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.